This is an ABC podcast. Imagining tomorrow's sustainable, self-sufficient city. That's the goal of Fab City, a global project which started in Barcelona and is currently being tested in Amsterdam. Fab City is an international initiative that currently involves 34 municipalities. They have regular conferences and workshops, they have a manifesto, and they have a goal, a rather ambitious one, to make their city self-sustainable by 2054. Now, a little later on Future Tense, we'll hear from one of the Fab City co-founders about that goal and whether it's even attainable. Hello, Anthony Fennell here. Welcome to the program. Today's show is really about planning. We all know the value of planning, but in a complex, complicated and often confounding world, it can be difficult knowing how to start. Well, we at least know how to start a program about how to start. We're starting with the growth in interest of what's called scenario planning. In many ways, a lot of us in everyday life think about future possibilities in scenario terms. Rafael Ramirez, director of the Oxford Scenarios Programme. If you think it might rain, but you're not sure it will rain, you take an umbrella. It's not a very expensive proposition to take the umbrella, and if it does rain, you don't get soaked. But for a number of reasons, professionals in companies and in government departments have sort of wished away that this uncertainty exists and hoped that they could predict the one future that happens. However, there's a big part of the future that is not predictable with those tools. And scenario planning is the complement to forecasting to the part of the future that you cannot predict. And as people become aware that a number of things that they thought they could predict and were not predictable in effect are coming about, they seek an alternative technology and scenario planning fits that globe. As we know, there are known knowns. There are things we know we know. We also know there are known unknowns. That is to say, we know there are some things we do not know. But there are also unknown unknowns. The ones we don't know, we don't know. The scenario planning approach adopted by Rafael Ramirez involves fleshing out up to four alternative futures. They're meant to be adventurous in their imagining, but crucially, they have to be plausible. They're also meant to prompt exploration, the sort of exploration, says Professor Ramirez, that doesn't come from a focus simply on data crunching. There are people that believe that artificial intelligence and other techniques will be able to master the data and marshal it down into forecastable techniques. My colleagues and I have doubts about whether they are confusing the capacity to marshal and analyze data with predictability and unpredictability. There was a man in 1921 called Knight who came up with the idea that there is category of futures, which he called uncertain future, which by definition are unpredictable in the sense that they might come about for reasons that are not set in the past. If I look at the demographics of migration, more and more of that can be modeled. Uh, you can look at the age of people. You can look at uh, when the next, God forbid, serious water shortage, maybe in the subcontinent, will come about. 
And then if you're Australia, figure out how many hundreds of millions of peasants who will no longer have a water table will be seeking somewhere, whether it's Australia or Britain, to move to because there's water there. So there are more possibilities to marshal data to predict. But because there are more and more events coming together, unpredictability in the sense of this is a one-off. There has not been an event like this in the past. There's no database in the past. There's no pattern among those data that I can project into the future. Those are the kinds of futures that scenario planning allows us to engage with and consider and plan for and become more resilient and more robust. Your program, the Oxford Scenarios Program, teaches a specific form of scenario planning. What distinguishes your approach to uh, the approach of others in this area? The first one is that we consider whoever's going to be using the scenarios, whether they're a CEO or chairman of the board or minister or senior policymaker, not as a decision maker, but as a learner. They're to learn to appreciate the texture of possibilities and the richness of connections that they need to grapple with. If you focus everything on decision-making, as many others do, you do not have that possibility to reiterate a number of times and do over multiple iterations different takes on this future until you get something that you have not thought about and is useful. A second one is we do not attach probabilities to the scenarios. We do not say this is a best-case scenario or a worst-case scenario. People that do that are basically doing forecasting and then dressing it up as scenarios. We think of of the scenarios as equally possible, equally plausible. And the idea is not to be truthful with them. Whether they happen or not is none of our business. What is important to us is whether the scenarios are useful to the learner in terms of learning about the situation she or or they are confronting. So if you're looking at, for example, the IMF on the future of financial stability, what is stability in the future? How does it come about? Who determines if that stability has been achieved or not? Is the stability going to be available in the IMF right across the world or only in certain zones of the world? How do you engage with that stability early? How do you recognize if you're losing it? And so on and so forth. So we're looking at possible futures that are useful in understanding the issue that you're addressing, where you are addressing it as a learner together with the scenario planners, not in the ultimate point, which happens, of course, later, but that's a different set of tools as a decision maker. And the last thing that it makes us different from others is that we make a very, very robust distinction between the futures that come at you independent of your will and the futures you can influence with others. And so that means that you are planning for futures, let's say Australia, whether you do something or not, something would happen to Australia, maybe rising sea levels, flooding lots of homes and businesses. If that were to happen, whether you're the Australia Federal Police or the mayor of Melbourne or the head of BHP, what kind of options are available to you as of now? And how do you learn about the wisdom of exercising them now or exercising them later? What kinds of preparations you need to do for them? In other places, they confuse the scenarios in terms of things that happen to you and things that you can do. And we find it much more useful to assess first what might happen to you 
and then seeing that landscape of possibilities determine who you collaborate with to address the issue. And the final one is we think that in the kind of uncertainty that you alluded to, Anthony, before, the kind of action that needs to be undertaken in these scenarios needs to be more collaborative than competitive. A lot of the research is about how do you put together a coalition of parties, uh, sometimes parties that you usually do not collaborate with, to address a future that without that collaboration would be dire for all of those concerned. So what makes for a good scenario? Well, for one thing, you need a story with a beginning and a middle and an end. You don't want to just have a set of bullet points about the world five or ten years from now. You want to see how the present unfolds into various different futures. Jay Ogilvie is an independent scenario planning consultant and author. There is a danger of a kind of hamlet to be or not to be uh, (laughs) prevarication in front of a variety of futures, and we know that. We know that going in. And so for that reason, we make a particular effort to prioritize a number of different strategic options and then to act, to act and not just prevaricate. There was a McKinsey study in 2013 that found that 40% of the executives that they surveyed believe that scenario planning wasn't effective for them, had little effectiveness. Are you surprised by those findings? I'm not really surprised because it is an art. It can be well done or poorly done. And alas, too many people do it poorly. And where do you see this type of approach being applied? Where is it most useful? It's most useful for firms that have a long time horizon, for firms that make investments that have a 10, 20, 30-year sunk cost reality. It's not terribly useful for just tomorrow or the day after tomorrow. Scenario planning does not get used, for example, in the fashion industry or that much in the packaged goods industry where timelines tend to be in months and maybe a few years. But in the oil industry, electric utilities industry, aerospace industry, industries like those that have a long time horizon, those industries are where scenario planning is the most useful. This kind of thinking sensitizes the leaders of an organization to notice early indicators in the environment that are pushing the strategic environment in one direction or another. Without this kind of thinking, the leaders just simply aren't as sensitive to what they're hearing in the news. And just finally, what are the common pitfalls? What are the traps to be avoided? The worst trap to be avoided is negative scenarios. It's psychologically difficult, but intellectually easy to dream up negative scenarios. You just take the present and you kick it apart. What's much more intellectually difficult, although psychologically easy, is imagining positive scenarios. We all like a happy ending. But positive scenarios are intellectually very difficult because you have to imagine solutions to problems that we have not yet solved. And the fact that we have not yet solved them is why we have not achieved those positive scenarios. But the fact that we have not yet solved them also makes it very difficult to write and imagine those positive scenarios. 
similarly with positive scenarios. It's not easy to imagine the solution to problems that will make a positive scenario plausible. It's very easy to make a negative scenario plausible. You just kick the hell out of the present. So that is one of the main pitfalls. We tend to generate negative scenarios more than positive scenarios. We tend to accentuate our fears rather than opening up our opportunities. Another danger to be avoided, says Jay Ogilvie, is furious agreement. You want to avoid groupthink. You want to avoid generating scenarios that are the result of a bunch of people talking with one another month after month, year after year. And what we do to try to avoid groupthink is seed scenario workshops with what we call remarkable people. People who have a skill of connecting the same old dots in new and different ways. Not so much subject matter experts who think they know all the answers, but rather good questioners, people who can challenge groupthink. Jay Ogilvie and the benefits of scenario planning as he and Oxford's Raphael Ramirez see them. This is Future Tense. I'm Anthony Fennell. Australia is a big country facing many problems, environmental as well as socio-political. It's not hard to find people who grumble about the standard of our politics and politicians, and we have lots of them. As a federal system, we have state governments as well as a national government, and then there are local councils. Coordinating policy and planning for the future is always difficult under such a devolved arrangement, to say the least, which is why Scott Davies, a senior associate with the design practice Hassel, is now proposing the idea of a national master plan. Master plans have been around for a long time. Paris, for example, with the Haussmann plan or L'Enfant's plan for Washington, created really bold ideas and plans for the future. And these cities are some of the most visited and some of the most beautiful in the world today. And so creating a master plan for the country that deals with problems like industry or urban mess or energy and land and even culture can help to bring those problems together and create a positive future. It's one thing to build a master plan for a city. Could you do it for a country like Australia, though, that is so spread out and that has so many state and municipal jurisdictions? Yeah, there are a lot of challenges. State boundaries, local government priorities, federal and international context to consider. But if we take a bottom-up approach, for example, using the power of social platforms to understand what local populations need and what their desires are, and also bringing that together to create a cohesive series of objectives around resilience and a sustainable future, at Hassel we think that this can provide the basis then for a plan to unfold over time. Modern master plans of the 20th century often produced highly organised cities, but they weren't always people-friendly, were they? That's right. Canberra, for example, is much lauded for its garden city approach and the Burley Griffin plan. However, the most interesting parts of the world are often those messy 
urban places. And this is something that Jane Jacobs really advocated for in New York in the 1960s. So really wanting to emphasise that need for urban life to emerge and not to overplan everything, but leave gaps for people to live their lives and I guess that urban mess to really emerge and allow things to come to fruition. What's at the core of the master plan concept? Well, really, it's about creating a a framework. So establishing the key priorities and having a, a framework and a series of principles and actions that allow us to plan for the future. And ultimately, it's about resilience and sustainability so that people ultimately have a bright future in harmony with country and with environment as well. There is a sense in which many people feel as though the countries are drifting into the future. And this was pointed out by a recent CSIRO study, wasn't it? It was. It was the Australian National Outlook and the CSIRO amongst business, NGOs and others identified a range of themes that we need to consider to really propel Australia into the future. So considering themes of industry, urban, energy, land and culture to effectively make sure that we're living up to our potential. And this was a really strong foundation for uh, that idea of a national master plan. How would this sit, though, with the sort of federalism that we see in countries like Australia, the United States and Canada? Would it fight against that federalism or do you see federalism being incorporated into this kind of idea? Well, I think we can use federalism as an opportunity because it provides a national framework and potential for all of those systems to be brought together. So there, there is a virtue in that, but also recognising the need for a local differences to emerge and be provided for as well. So to provide for that, I guess it's a mix of that bottom-up and top-down approach. So the federal government can provide that overarching framework within which then state and local actions can be maintained. If it's just top-down, I don't think it is ultimately sustainable. People, industry, government needs to really believe in it and provide for its emergence over time. So that bottom-up approach using potentially the power of social media, for example, to continually test those ideas, to reach out to populations and to broadcast what the potential of a national master plan is, enables a much more authentic series of actions to occur. This is really a utopian idea in many ways, isn't it? Is it just that? Well, I think with topics like the emergence of the national approach to population, for example, strategies around dealing with water across state boundaries, etc., we are starting to see uh, the need for these sorts of things and a national master plan can really help tie that together in a cohesive way. Scott Davies, Senior Associate with Hassel, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much. When you click that button, you're committing to the next 40 years of Barcelona becoming the world's first self-sufficient city. Are you ready to push the button? Ready, set, go. The Fab City Global Initiative is an urban environmental movement that now involves 34 cities. It's about rewriting the way cities are planned and run. It's not anti-globalisation, but it's certainly critical of the way the current method of international trade impacts on the environment. One of its co-founders is Barcelona-based urban planner Tomás Díaz. 
FabCity is trying to solve a very simple problem. It's trying to bring back manufacturing to the cities, but not only the manufacturing of products, but in terms of what a city needs, FabCity is trying to bring back the production of food, the production of energy, and the production of things closer to consumption. It means that we are trying to reduce the use of fossil fuels to transport things around the world. And we're trying to bring like a healthier food to people and as well as like more ethical products because we believe that transparency and how things are made is fundamental in terms of the use of cheap labor, in terms of the use of supply chains that are not really fair to certain people around the world. And the initiative itself has a rather ambitious goal, doesn't it? Those cities that sign up to be part of this initiative are looking to produce everything that they consume by the year 2054. Is that goal actually possible? It's ambitious, but is it possible? Technological advancement is happening super fast. We are able to do things that we could not imagine. So, you know, thinking about cities producing what they need is actually something that is not very new. Medieval cities in the, you know, ancient Europe used to produce almost everything they consume, actually, within their walls. But thanks to industrialization, we have moved production away from cities. So actually, what we are doing is kind of a reinventing the wheel, in a way, but with some high-tech. means like we're trying to do high-tech medieval cities. The 2054 goal came because the mayor of Barcelona in 2014 launched a challenge for cities all around the world. And what we did is actually at the closing event of a Fab Lab conference, we kind of challenged the mayor to press a button that would start a countdown. And that countdown was 40 years. So that's why 2054 is the date which we imagine that cities are able to produce I would say almost everything they consume, because I think that we will still need some global supply chains, but not as ridiculous as we do in it today. And just picking up on that point, I mean, there are lots of negatives that are identified with globalisation, including rising inequality and also environmental damage. But isn't some trade a good thing for humans and for communities? It is. I mean, uh, that's what I'm saying. Like uh, we say, like uh, cities, they should not become like a walled cities as they used to be, you know, in the medieval age, right? In which we're trying to close completely the production of things to something that is not from the city. I mean, the world that we have today is highly connected. So we imagine like, a, you know, a local self-sufficiency, but it's globally connected. That's super important to consider. But at the same time, we are not trying just to close the borders. And also, I don't think that everything that the city needs can be produced locally. So some percentage of that will be still done elsewhere. But what I don't see fair is that some farmers, they produce a lot of food for people that consume around the world, and then they are paid very little. So I think that we need to reconsider what it means fair and what it means like a good trade for people. I think that it should be hand by hand with the capacity for these farmers, for the people that work in the Chinese factories, for the people that work in in the fashion factories in Bangladesh, to be able also to be part of a community in which they produce locally healthy food, in which they have access to all the services that we have elsewhere in the world. Why do you think it's easier for cities to achieve the type of sustainability that you're talking about, as opposed to the nation state? When you think about centralized infrastructure, you need a nation states to be able to build, you know, the dams to generate energy from water or to build the nuclear plants, railways, uh, ports, airports, and so on. 
But when you move towards a more distributed infrastructure in which you want to bring closer to consumption products, food or energy, I think the main role that is going to be played in, in the coming years you know, is in the hands of cities. Cities are small enough to be close to people, to activate communities, and they are big enough to have an influence. This is super important because the cities themselves, they will need to have, you know, sources of water, source of land in order to cultivate certain products. And that's why we are talking about not only cities in some cases, but also about regions. When you start to put in cities a new type of infrastructure, imagine that cities can have flexible factories that they can produce on demand what people need and not in opposition to uh, creating millions of products and creating uh, stocks that you, then you need to move around the world using petrol. And then nation states, they should be more like a clusters in which they support er everything else that is done in cities. And it's going to take some time for us to realize that. But I think that the future of this planet is in the hands of cities. No question. So am I right in suggesting that this is not just about sustainability? It's also about building resilience into uh, individual communities. Absolutely. This is empowerment. This is distributing the capacity for people to be able to have a voice. And it's not a voice just to, you know, to vote every four or six years, but to have a voice into the, you know, the active participation into the construction of what their communities are. And that's something that I also think that our democracy needs. Our democracy is broken. Our democracy is just giving a voice for people just once every four years again. And then it's giving all the responsibility to some representat representation that they put in some people. And what we have learned is that the representation has been really mismanaged. And I can say that, you know, being from Venezuela, living in Barcelona, and being also very aware of what is happening globally, you know, Brexit, Trump, uh, you know, all the authoritarian regimes that are happening everywhere right now, it's actually sending us some signals about our democracy. We need to fix it. And the way to fix it is basically putting the power of creating the life we want, not in the hands of nations, but in the hands of cities, again. What's the, the greatest difficulty that you face in trying to, to make this vision real? The main difficulty is to make governments to work with people that they are not used to work with the government and the other way around. I think that we have a lot of challenges at, at, at the city level because city governments also, they are very, very difficult to work with, I have to say. And I have found this almost everywhere in the world. They have their own way to work only within their own rules or within their own limits. And I understand that, but I think the challenges that we have now in cities, but also as a planet, it will need also for you know certain organizations like public organizations to take some more risks and to operate a little bit differently as they have used to operate in the past. So these kind of collaborations are super difficult. And the other one, I think that it's also something that we're building right now is to establish the metrics that we need in order to measure the progress of each one of the cities. So this is something that it has been required by a lot of our partners It's saying, okay, how do we measure that we're doing something good? We have developed metrics at the country level, but not at the city level of what the city consumes, what the city produces, you know, what it does with its waste. We just started to produce that data just recently. The main benefit of being part of a Fab City Global Initiative is to be able to learn from each other, is to be able to share strategies that you are trying to do with a common objective. When you talk about, for instance, in the past, we have heard a lot about smart cities, right? 
And then the smart cities was basically, uh, you know, this kind of uh, trendy term that companies and governments were using, first of all, to sell you infrastructure like uh, sensors, like servers, uh, like uh, digital infrastructure for the city. And uh, that's from the companies. And then on the other hand, you have the governments that they wanted to have more control over the city and the citizens. But what we're trying to do is a little bit different. We're saying, you know, there is a level of infrastructure that needs to be built by the city you know, like the wires for internet and that, you know, the buildings and so on. But then you can put in the hands of people the capacity to generate inventions that they can solve core problems in the city, right? Like, uh, again, production of energy or how would we measure, for instance, the pollution of air in Barcelona, which is terrible, by the way, right? So the core of what we're doing is based on open source, open source sharing of knowledge, because you want people to copy you. You want people to download your file and to reproduce it anywhere in the world. Open source of sensor data or data about the population and so on, but also data about how a product is developed, designed, and manufactured. And that's what's happening already in the FabLab network. People share the designs. They don't share the products in atoms. Thomas Diaz, thank you very much for joining us on Future Tense. Bye-bye. Ciao. And that's the program for another week. My thanks, as always, to colleague and co-producer Karen Savanovitz. I'm Anthony Fennell. Until next time, cheers. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.